calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hello, welcome to Strong Sense of Place. In each episode, we focus on one destination and discuss what makes it different from any other place on Earth. Then we recommend five books we love that took us there on the page. I'm Melissa Jewelwan. I'm David Humphreys. We're going around the world one great read at a time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to episode 13 of Strong Sense of Place. Lucky 13. It's season two. We made it to season two. Great job, everybody. Raises all around. <laughs> Today, we get curious about Paris. I have a giant, squishy, soft spot in my heart for Paris. Same. And I know that there are people who don't enjoy Paris because it's quite large and it can be overwhelming. Yeah. But I feel like today we're going to make a strong case for why Paris is pretty much always a good idea. I also have a friend who, he travels a lot for business, mm -hmm. and we have a chat channel that we share. And at one point he said, does anybody have any ideas about what I can do in Paris? I've been here for three weeks, and I've seen everything. <laughs> and it occurred to me then, and not for the first time, that people are different than I am. Yes. People have different ideas about what it's like to explore a city. Paris was one of the very last places we were before the coronavirus. It's true. We went to Paris last October, specifically because we wanted to see an art exhibit, a Van Gogh art exhibit that was taking place at the Atelier des Lumières, yeah. which is so much fun to say. Yeah. It's a really cool exhibit that is still going on, although I don't know how long it will be, um, where there's a old factory space and they're projecting Van Gogh artworks onto the walls and they're animated so you can actually feel like you're walking into the Van Gogh paintings. Yeah. And there's music. It was even better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, and the, the animations are several stories tall. And I thought that was going to be the highlight of our trip. Right. But then we went to the catacombs. Yes. We went underground. Yeah. And I thought that was going to be the highlight of our trip. <laughs> and then we actually enjoyed the highlight of our trip. Which was? We went to a bakery. That actually breaks kind of one of the fundamental rules that I have heard about bakeries in Paris, which is baguette, croissant, and pastries are never made in the same bakery. Those are three distinct baking skills, and you should not have those things from the same place. Right. But we did find a bakery that was recommended by David Leibovitz, who is an American who's lived in Paris for decades. He's a cookbook author. He recommends a bakery that makes croissant and baguette that are both award-winning. And we started with delicious cafe creme, just coffee with cream. And we had a croissant. And then we decided we should have a baguette too. Yeah. So I asked the guy, you know, do you have... Adorable 20-year-old French boy. Sort of cinematically perfect. Right. Yes, he was like the male Emily. Yeah. And I said, you know, do you have this baguette? And he said, well, they're, they're in the oven. Can you wait for five minutes? And the answer was, yes, of course I can wait for five minutes. We saw them bring a basket from the back room into the front yeah. sales counter with all these baguette. And then he just slid it into the paper sleeve in front of us. 
And the heat coming through the paper like made it hard to hold. That's how hot it was. We walked out into that neighborhood and ate that baguette as we were walking. It is a moment that I will remember on my deathbed. It was fantastic. It was so good. It was just crunchy and chewy and the air was crisp and cool because it was October. And we came on this little square that looked like a movie set. It was so perfectly French. Yeah. And the I don't know, it took us maybe 20 minutes to eat that baguette. And it was hot all the way to the end. That square had like a little church and a little theater. And a bars. market. Yeah. Trees. I expected Gene Kelly to appear. <laughs> and I feel like that story for me kind of highlights one of the things I love about Paris, which is, of course, there's incredible art and history and architecture, and you can pay to have these incredible cultural experiences. But for me, some of my favorite moments are always when we're just walking around, enjoying the fresh air and the really beautiful quality of the light in Paris and just kind of soaking in the vibe of the city. And that doesn't cost you anything. Do you want to do the 101? I do. Bring us all up to date on where this fancy Paris place you're talking about is. <laughs> this little hidden gem of Paris. First, a disclaimer. In this episode, we are concentrating on Paris, but we are well aware that there are a lot of wonderful things in France outside of Paris. Yes. So for everyone who's wondering, we will get to the rest of France eventually. As you may or may not know, our goal is to get to every country in the world and every state in the United States at some point. And for places like France, which have an outstanding city and a bunch of other things to do, we'll probably be revisiting those places multiple times. Yeah. So fear not, we will get to Provence. Okay, I am pretty sure our audience knows this, but we're just going to quickly cover the basics just in case. Okay. Paris is the capital of France. What? <laughs> It's located in the northern part of the country, but almost exactly in the middle going west to east. So it's right in the middle, but north. France is roughly the size of the U.S. state of Texas. And Paris is at roughly the same latitude as the northern tip of Newfoundland, Canada. So it is pretty far north, mm -hmm. which also explains why the light is so beautiful. One more orientation fact. Paris is about half the size of Brooklyn. Really? Yeah. Huh. So it's much smaller than New York City. Yeah. Now let's talk about the vibe, because that's really what I think is the important part. Whatever daydreamy, romantic, gauzy, light-infused ideas you have of Paris as a visitor are probably not too far from reality. As we already mentioned, the light is very soft and kind of gives everything a glow. Pretty much anywhere you go in Paris, you can see the Eiffel Tower. And for me... That is a magical, wonderful thing. But the famous French writer, Guy de Maupassant, legendarily hated the Eiffel Tower. And the mythology is that he used to eat lunch in a cafe right underneath the tower every day because he said if he sat there, it was the only place in Paris where he couldn't see the tower. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of here for that kind of pettiness. Yes. One of the other things that makes Paris, I think, look particularly like Paris is, of course, there are cafes lining all of the streets. And they have the way of arranging the chairs so that the chairs are facing the street as opposed to facing the table, which always feels like this invitation to sit down and watch the parade of humanity go by. It's one of the things that I think I love most about Paris is that they, as a culture, are all up for the sit. They yes. are set up to have a seat, look around, have a coffee or a glass of wine and just enjoy where you are right now. Which I feel like for us has been a real shift in, well, us trying to shift how we think about the world, get out of the habit of grabbing a cup of coffee to go and actually taking 20 minutes to just sit down and be. I feel like it can be really challenging for us, maybe because we're American, maybe just because of our personalities, but yeah, I agree. Starbucks is very anti-Paris. The idea that you would <laughs> drive through, get a coffee, spill it down your gullet while you're trying to get to work yeah. is not the same experience as sitting down at a cafe and having a moment while you are also enjoying a cup of coffee. Of course, if you're interested in cultural things, 
like amazing art and food and literature and architecture, you are going to find that in Paris. There have been people in the vicinity of Paris since a Celtic tribe settled along the Seine around 259 BC. That's a long time. That is a long time ago. If you fast forward to 508, the first king of the Franks made Paris his capital. Wow. Then jumped to the 12th century, and we get the founding of Notre Dame Cathedral and the first university in France. Then, of course, we get the French Revolution right. and Napoleon and the Belle Epoque and the 1920s with Hemingway and Gertrude Stein and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Picasso and Dali. Kind of the golden age of Paris. Cheers. <laughs> and then... Yeah. World War I, World, World, World War II. Mm-hmm. Nazis. Yep. Flying swastikas yep. in Paris. Not a fan of that. As long as we're talking about petty actions that happened in Paris, Hitler rolled into Paris. He wanted to see the Eiffel Tower. And he could not get up into the Eiffel Tower because Frenchmen had cut the cables to the elevator before he arrived. Well done. (laughs) That's fantastic. Isn't it? Yes. Okay, so in addition to all of that dramatic world-influencing history and the romantic daydreamy aspects of visiting Paris, it's also a thriving, modern, multicultural city. Yes, with the problems of a thriving, multicultural city. That's one of the things that makes it so fascinating to me. And I also feel that way about Prague too, right? You can visit and kind of immerse yourself in the past and this kind of gauzy romantic version of the city. But there are also people going to the grocery store and working and raising their families. And that makes it feel very alive and relevant right now, in addition to having this deep-seated historical context. Yeah, both things are true, right? There's the magical Paris and then there's the working Paris. Right. And both are fascinating. And that's a really great background for storytelling. Right. And the books we've chosen cover all of those aspects of Paris. Are you ready for two truths and a lie? Oui. Okay, so I'm about to say three statements. Two of them are true. One of them is not. Mel does not know which one of these is true. First, there is a restaurant in Paris where you eat in complete darkness. Two, the Mona Lisa was stolen in 1911. One of the suspects was Salvador Dali. Oh, I love Salvador Dali. I just have to say, like, surrealist art, I can take it or leave it. Intellectually, I understand it. It's not my personal favorite thing to gaze upon. But him as a person, the mustache, the crazy cookbook he wrote, his whole My Life as an Art Project, Super into it. Yeah. Third, there's an underground group of hackers and agents who secretly fixed the clock in a church where Voltaire is buried. Hmm. Once again, you've done it. They all sound true. I am 99.9% sure that there is a restaurant where you eat in the complete dark. I believe that one is true. That one is true. It's called Danse Lenoir. It has uh, 4.3 stars after 1,100 reviews on Google although a lot of reviewers don't love the food. (laughs) (laughs) It's staffed entirely by visually impaired people. You get your server's attention by calling their name. In the words of one diner, you have no idea where your fellow diners are sitting and how many are at the table, how big the room is, or if indeed the guy in the next seat has stripped naked. It is genuinely disconcerting. (laughs) The menu also is a surprise. I was going to ask you what kind of food they serve. Yeah. You go and you sit down. You you, you don't know what you're getting? No. You oh, can... that would be tough for me. <laughs> like, even if I could get over the hurdle of just being in the complete dark, which is not my favorite thing. Yeah. So that gets us to... Dali stealing the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Or the underground group of hackers who fixed the clock. Okay. I'm going to say that someone stole the Mona Lisa, but I don't think it was Dali. That is correct. Hooray! was not a suspect. So on uh, August 11th, 1911, the Mona Lisa was stolen by three men who spent the previous night in an art supply closet in the Louvre. (gasps) (laughs) They came out in the morning, lifted uh, 200 pounds of painting and frame and protective glass off of the wall, and they walked out of the Louvre. Wow, they just picked the whole thing off the wall as is and walked out with it? Yep. And they got on a train. And it was two years before anybody saw the Mona Lisa again. Wow. Yeah. 
But the the Mona Lisa was not what it is now then. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the next day that anybody noticed that the Mona Lisa was gone. <laughs> the staff had thought it had been taken to the roof to be photographed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Because photography wasn't good. They needed the sunlight. Right. The Louvre announced the theft. The New York Times ran a headline that I love. The headline said, 60 detectives seek stolen Mona Lisa. French public indignant. (laughs) (laughs) After two years, one of the thieves decided the heat had gone down sufficiently and he took the Mona Lisa to a dealer. (laughs) The dealer... According to the story, the dealer did not recognize the Mona Lisa, but he mm-hmm. saw the, on the back there was a, the mark of the Louvre, and uh, they were busted, and the painting was returned, and it said that the theft helped make the Mona Lisa what it is today. Wow. That's a pretty cool story. And as much as I'd like it to be true, Salvador Dali was not a suspect. He would have been seven. Oh. Yeah. But Pablo Picasso was a suspect. <gasps> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I want someone to write that novel now. Picasso was a suspect because he and a buddy had stolen stuff from the Louvre before. (laughs) What a thug. Yeah. In 1907, his buddy lifted a third century statue and gave it to Picasso. A couple of years later, Picasso returned the favor. Another buddy, a third buddy, ratted them out to the cops. Picasso and his buddy made plans to throw their stolen art into the Seine, (gasps) but ultimately could not do that. So did they give it back? I don't know if they did, but they weren't cleared until the Mona Lisa was recovered. Wow. What was happening with security at the Louvre in yeah, the early 1900s? Yeah, I mean, it was lax. It was lax. Right? And that leaves us with, there is a group of hackers and thieves who fixed the clock in the church where Voltaire is buried. This is all according to a 2012 article in Wired. There's a group in Paris called UX for Urban Experiment. Their most sensational caper was completed in 2006. Uh, They spent months infiltrating the Pantheon, Mm -hmm. which is a monument that houses the remains of France's most sort of cherished citizens. Eight restorers built their own secret workshop in a storeroom, which they wired for electricity and internet access and outfitted with armchairs and tools, a fridge and a hot plate. And they stayed there for a year. In the Pantheon? Yeah. Undetected. uh Uh-huh. They'd sneak in. What is happening with security in Paris? (laughs) During the course of the year, they they painstakingly restored the Pantheon's 19th century clock. The clock hadn't chimed since the 60s. And then one day in 2006, it rang for the first time (laughs) on the hour, the half hour, and the quarter hour. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay, so the management? Uh Uh-huh. Not amused. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that instead of being filled with gratitude, there was a lot of WTF going on. Well, okay. So the director of the Pantheon went so far as to hire a clockmaker to restore the clock to its previous condition by sabotaging it. The clockmaker refused to do more than uh, sort of disengage a part, the escape wheel. UX slipped in and stole that part <laughs> from them and uh, are said to be safekeeping it now uh, in hope that someday a more enlightened administration will return. I feel like all of the two truths and a lie today need novels <laughs> written about them. So if anyone is listening and is a budding novelist, could you please get on that for me? Thank you. UX claims to have conducted 15 other such covert restorations all in Paris. So their intentions are good or are they just mischief makers or both? They're both mischief makers, but they have good intentions. Right. I love it. They get in and... I need a TV series. They're the same people. Remember when we went to the um, catacombs and there was that story of a group who had been in there and set up a movie theater? Yes, yes. That's the same group. I love them. Do you think they wear black turtlenecks and black berets? I can only hope. And yeah. occasionally bandit masks. and Maybe when the women smoke cigarettes, they have them in long cigarette holders. There's a comic series called Bandette, which I really love. Oh, yeah, I read one of those. Yeah. So cute. Yeah, and I'm thinking that Bandad is a member of UX. Definitely. That's all I got. That's two truths and a lie. Do you want to talk about books? I always want to talk about books. Yes. My first book is Vintage 1954 by Antoine Lorraine. It is translated from the French by Emily Boyce and Jane Aitken. I feel like it's really important to mention the translators because the translations of his books are beautiful. Translation is such an art. Mm -hmm. I love to plug the people who do it. 
Yeah. So if I was going to conjure the perfect book to represent romantic, whimsical Paris, daydreamy Paris, the Paris of movies like Amelie and Sabrina, it would be this book. The story starts in 2017 in an apartment in Paris. Oh, very recent. Yes, contemporary. There's a group of people, some of whom know each other and some of whom have just met. And they're sharing a vintage bottle of Beaujolais wine from 1954. So imagine the scene. Mm -hmm. Beautiful apartment with high ceilings, windows looking out over the city. There's a gothy antiques dealer. There's an American named Bob from Milwaukee. Bob from Milwaukee. Bob from Milwaukee. And he's visiting Paris for a very personal and poignant reason. So Bob might have some hidden depths. Okay. There's a cocktail mixologist who is really into creating new cocktails. And he makes a cocktail that actually is pretty important to the plot. And then there's the host, who is a very, very French Frenchman. He is not super comfortable socializing. And now he's got all these people in his apartment sharing this really, really important bottle of wine. And then something magical happens, although they don't know it at the time. Okay. The wine flows, the conversation is rolling along, and by the end of the evening, they all part ways and they're all feeling very content and warm and glowy. And the next morning when they wake up, they are in 1950s Paris. Wow. Yeah. What do they do about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) As they're trying to figure out exactly what has happened, because now their cell phones aren't working, you know, they go to the metro stop where they usually go and realize that things look different. And why do the light posts look like that? Like the the dawning realization. Yeah. How long would it take you to realize that you are in 1954 if you just woke up one morning? And that's kind of a, a comical part of the novel because they're all so entrenched in their routines that it takes them a little while to notice that things aren't functioning the way they're supposed to. Like, because you would look at your phone and be like, oh, I don't know. I guess yeah, it's just not working out, right now. Right. Yeah. And Bob has never been there before. So it takes him a while to realize things aren't functioning the way they're supposed to. The phone suggests that some elements of your life went back with you, too. Yeah. I mean, they have their stuff. Yeah. As they are trying to sort out just what is happening, they're visiting all of the Paris landmarks that you would want to see on a trip to Paris. So they go to Harry's Bar, which is a very famous cocktail bar. Of course, they go to the Eiffel Tower and the Louvre. And then eventually the story moves to the French countryside and this beautiful vineyard at Chateau Saint-Antoine. And they're trying to unravel the mystery of this magical bottle of wine. As they are going on these adventures in the past, they also run into famous Parisians, which is really fun. So real life people make cameos like Audrey Hepburn, Edith Piaf, Mm -hmm. the photographer Robert Doineau, who did that famous picture of the people kissing in Mm -hmm. Paris, filmmaker Francois Truffaut. They just like run into them in cafes and bars and have conversations with them. It's thoroughly enchanting. My notes from this book have adjectives like effervescent, overtly optimistic, <laughs> wistful, yeah, delight, yeah. <laughs> like lots of exclamation points. Right. And But aside from the kind of stylistic, frothy bubbliness of it, it also has a lot of things that I really, really love in a novel. There are some kind of devastating family secrets that are revealed. There's, of course, romance. There's this big adventure because <laughs> they've transported back in time. And there's found family, which is, of course, my number one favorite thing in a novel. This is a 100% feel-good read. And it made me really homesick for a Paris that I've never experienced. Right. And which maybe never actually existed. It's a very idealized version of Paris. Right. That's about the best you can get from a book with a strong sense of place, I think. Also, I'd love a time travel with a romance in it. Yeah, it's very sweet. Yeah. I am not a fan of time travel, science fiction novels. I have a really hard time wrapping my head around the paradoxes and the science of time travel, but this book is not that. This is like the most whimsical. I just happened to find myself in 1950. Hey, Audrey Hepburn. (laughs) So if if time travel is not your thing, don't worry because... It's more of a fantasy and less of a a sci-fi book. The author Antoine Lorraine has written six other novels that have been translated into English. He's very popular, very well-known. I also read The Red Notebook, which is another 
really charming love story about a neighborhood bookshop in Paris. Mm-hmm. The owner of the shop finds a handbag lying on the oh, street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a red notebook inside of it. Yep. And he becomes determined to find the woman who lost this handbag. At first, he's worried that something has happened to her. He's worried that she's been assaulted or something. This is the same guy who wrote The President's Hat. Correct. Yeah. Which is also very well-reviewed and much adored. Yeah. So, so he sort of specializes in Parisian fantasy. Yes. And you can go really deep with him if you find that his books suit your taste. Yeah. But I'm going to recommend that you start with Vintage 1954. Nice. What's the author's name again? Antoine Lorraine. Okay. And I will put a video of an interview with Antoine Lorraine in the show notes because if you were going to conjure in your imagination a French author, it would be him. Yeah, he should be carrying a baguette. But other than that, <laughs> he looks a little, little bit to me like... um Adrian Brody. Yes. Yes. Adrian Brody. Yes. Yeah. Kind of a more suave and charming French Ichabod Crane. <laughs> yeah. With a really good accent. Yeah. My first book is The Invention of Hugo Cabret by Brian Selznick. Now, this is a children's book. It's unlike most children's book in that it's about 500 pages long. Ooh, I love that. It's a, it's a brick. I would consider it a graphic novel. It's rich with full-page images, some of which advance the plot. There are 284 images, Wikipedia tells me. Fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) But there's also a ton of text. His style is really, really, I would say, like, whimsical, charming. Oh, for sure. This book won the Caldecott Medal in 2008, and it was the first novel to do so. Caldecott is normally for picture books. Hmm. And the committee decided that this was a picture book as well as a novel. It was made into a movie by Martin Scorsese in 2011. The movie was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Wow. Yeah. We saw that movie. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. You know what was funny about that movie is I was thinking about it and I remembered it as being animated. And then I went back. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's live action. Yeah, it's live action. (laughs) (laughs) But it does have that kind of sheen Mm -hmm. of fantasy where you could, it could feel animated. Yeah. I feel like these two, Vintage 1954 and Hugo Cabret, would be a really good twofer if you wanted the kind of whimsical, charming Paris. Yes, definitely trading in that. Uh, The story follows a young boy, Hugo, who lives in a train station in Paris in the 1930s. I mean, right there, I could not be more in. He's alone. He takes care of the clocks in the station. When the story starts, his status is a little fuzzy. Uh, He seems to be parentless. He's a little bit of a scamp, which also endearing. I'm in. Yep. He has holes in his shoes. He definitely seems to be sneaking around to fix the clocks, and he's a thief, and it's unclear why he's doing any of that. He also has an automaton, (laughs) a clockwork man, like a robot, but sort of simpler. But it's also not a simple device. It's clearly a complex mechanical device. We don't know where the automaton is from or what it does. It's a man sitting at a desk holding a pen. Nice. Yeah. It's broken. Hugo's determined to fix it. And that's Hugo's normal. That's where the, that's his day to day. And then one day he has a run in with an old man who runs a toy booth in the train station. Hugo is stealing parts to fix the automaton and he gets caught. Eventually the automaton reveals its secret, which leads to more secrets and revelations. Hugo meets a girl who's the toy maker's goddaughter. He gains her trust and he loses it again. There are bits in the book that are just, just a little heartbreaking. I mean, you can't have the Golden Glow without a little bit of heartbreak. It's true, yeah. The book does two really impressive tricks, I thought. First, it's a magical story that doesn't have any magic in it. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Hugo feels magical. It feels like it's a fairy tale that could very well have an ogre in it, but it's, it doesn't. It's grounded in our reality. And the second trick is kind of related to the first, but different. It winds into our reality. There are elements of our world that come storming into the story about two-thirds of the way through. The really cool part of this trick is that it reminds us that our own world is full of wonder. The climax of this book is how magical our own world is, (laughs) which I just adore. That's so great. Yeah, I mean, that's my favorite kind of fantasy, which is pointing out the magic that can be found in the real world. Yeah. Or superimposing a sheen of fantasy on top of the real world. Yeah. As opposed to creating something from whole cloth. 
Yeah. Because the world is magical. Look at the Eiffel Tower, for heaven's sake. Yeah, yeah. The end result of this book to me is that the book feels a lot like Paris, where, which is why I picked it for the show, that Paris feels magical, even though it's really not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a city. It has unexpected and delightful elements, but there are elements that are firmly grounded in our own world. It's a really good jerk, this book. That's The Invention of Hugo Cabret by Brian Selznick. My second book is a complete departure from the mood of our first two recommendations. Okay. This book is called The Godmother by Hannah-Laure Kerr, translated by Stephanie Smee. And this is a contemporary crime novel. Oh, okay. It's short. It's only about 218 pages, so it goes really quickly. But it's like concentrated detergent. It's super powerful. (laughs) It's a little book that could. It's awesome. So our heroine is named Patience. Patience Portefeuille. She's 53 years old, and she is an interpreter for the Ministry of Justice. Her specialty is listening to tapes from wiretaps and translating from Arabic to French. And most of the conversations that she's listening to are between drug dealers from North Africa. Oh, okay. Although she works for the police, Patience is starting to extend her empathy towards the crooks. Listening to them for hours on end has humanized them. Yeah. And she knows what it's like to be in some tough spots. Her husband died recently, and she's now become solely responsible for her elderly mother, who is in a care facility, and for her own adult daughters. So she's now like a single mom with a lot of responsibility. So all of these circumstances lead patients to make a shocking, life-changing decision. And from there, we're just like off to the races. Right. I don't think it's giving anything away to say that there's a reason this novel is called The Godmother. (laughs) (laughs) There are hints in the title of what might be happening. Yeah. Okay, so things I love about this book. Yeah. This is not the Paris of vintage 1954 or Hugo Cabret. Mm -hmm. This is a gritty, crime-riddled, urban destination. Which is also an aspect of Paris that we have to acknowledge. Paris is a large, thriving metropolis. Right. The suburbs are very different than the arrondissement with the Eiffel Tower in it. Paris is home to more than two million people. They are not all going to be elegant ladies in little black dresses with a glass of wine. The second largest ethnic group in France, after French people, are people of Arab origin. So this is a big part of the population. Yeah. But this is really interesting. Ethnic statistics are forbidden in France. Really? So there are no official figures about what the actual demographics of the Arabic population are. Huh. Yeah. But we know from the news that relationships between the Arab population and the French population are not always smooth. Yeah. Rocky, even. So that's one of the things that I really liked about this book. It's another facet to what life in Paris is like. The second thing to love about this book is that Patience is just an awesome character. She's this 53-year-old woman who has not taken anybody's crap. I wanted to be her. I wanted to have her as my best friend. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, first of all, she's a wizard with languages. You know, she's translating Arabic to French in real time. She's very tough and smart and really snappy. And even though she becomes the godmother, she's also honest in her own way which is one of my favorite things in a character, particularly I like my detective characters to kind of have a shadow side. And now I guess I like my criminal characters to have an honest side. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, She's super likable, even though she does some really dodgy things because she has really good reasons for doing them, which I'm not going to give away. Right. She also kind of struts into what's traditionally a man's world and takes control of it. And she does that not by acting like the men, but by fully embodying her practical female side. Aside from the really thrilling caper aspects of this story, it's also a really sharp examination of societal issues that are happening right now. How modern Western culture cares or doesn't care for the elderly and who we kind of put in charge of taking care of our elderly people in these facilities. What it's like to be an immigrant in Western culture. The sidelining of women of a certain age. Mm -hmm. We don't stop being interesting people once we get past 50. Yeah. But all of those things are tackled like 
really deftly. So you're not getting pounded over the head with it. It's all kind of integral to this story that's really a page turner. And it's also a really moving look at what people are willing to do for their families. That's ultimately her motivation for all of the things that she does. Okay, one final thing I want to say about this book. The translation by Stephanie Smee is fantastic, and I'm not the only one who thinks so. The novel was the winner of the European Crime Fiction Prize and the Grand Prix de Literature Policière, which is the most prestigious prize for crime fiction in France. And it also inspired the movie Mama Weed. So if you're looking for a book in translation because you're trying to read more translated books, this is a great one. Very accessible, super page turner. It's short, it's punchy, it's a fun story, it's got some feelings in it. That is The Godmother by Hannah-Laura Kerr. It sounds packed. Like, how do you get all that stuff into 220 pages? I told you, it's concentrated like superpower detergent. (laughs) Yeah, you did. My next book is The Only Street in Paris, Life from the Rue de Matea by Elaine Cialdino. Can I just say again how much I love your French accent? Thank you so much. I should have put that disclaimer up front that I was going to butcher. Right. We meant to talk about that in the introduction. Every French word. That you have charmed all of Paris (laughs) with your impeccable French accent. Yeah, it's true. Well, listen to me smug over here. (laughs) Like my accent is so much better. The Only Street in Paris, the author, Elaine Cialdino, is the former Paris bureau chief for the New York Times and also a chevalier for the French Legion of Honor. So she might know what she's talking she about. She might know what she's talking about. She, she could probably help us with our French accent. She's been covering Paris for almost 20 years. This is a book about one street. It's her neighborhood. It's almost the perfect nonfiction strong sense of place book. Ciolina spends about 300 pages describing her favorite street in Paris. We get descriptions of its people and its food and its history, the architecture, the sites. She is thorough. And it's engaging, uh, as you might expect from the former Paris bureau chief for the New York Times. She is a good writer. Huh. Yep. Shocking. Yep. And she's also really good with people. Ooh. I mean, that's a rare combination. It is a rare combination. (laughs) Yeah. She seems to know everybody on her street, and she describes them in ways that makes you want to get to know them. The book's written in a series of vignettes. For instance, there's a chapter that follows the man giving a tour on the street. It's one of the first chapters, and I thought it was a really super clever way of doing that. She establishes the neighborhood by following around another guy. and That's so cool. Yeah, talking about what he's talking about. I also really love to do that. I love when you're visiting a foreign city and you come up on a tour group and you can kind of hang on the fringe of it and hear what the tour guide is saying. Yeah, it's like that. There's another about ghosts in the neighborhood. Ooh, that sounds good too. When she's at her best, which is frequently, she manages to describe the community vibrantly while she's maybe telling you about something else. Mm-hmm. That's a really good trick. Maybe the third chapter in the book is about the tragedy of the local fishmonger closing. It gives a real sense of the community and for me, really punched up why the French are the same and also different from people I've known. I'm going to read about a page of it. The setup is there's a family-run fishmonger, a fish shop, La Poissonnerie Bleue that has announced that it's going to close at the end of the month. The author is describing a local woman's reaction. To any customer willing to listen, she said, this is going to kill the bottom of the Rue de Matea. This is a little village. Parents bring their kids here to teach them about food. Her greatest fear was that a shoe store would move in. The more she talked, the darker her predictions. If there's no fish shop, the neighborhood is dead. Everyone had an opinion about what could happen next, and all of the opinions were negative. <laughs> Maybe the Careform supermarket next door would break down the walls and expand. Maybe yet another cheese shop or bakery would take over. No one had much hope that another fishmonger would move in. Where will we go for fish, one customer lamented. Picard? <laughs> Picard is a national all-frozen food supermarket chain with an outlet around the corner. Its frozen red mullet is half the price of the fresh counterpart, La Poissarine Bleue, but Picard is viewed with disdain by traditional French cooks. The dirty little secret is that some Picard fish is pas mal, which in French doesn't mean not bad. It actually means pretty good, only no one was admitting that in this crisis. There was a smaller fresh fish store several blocks up the street, 
but for residents of the lower Rue de Matier, that was a world away. Too far. Too far, said Yves Chantagnier, who runs a cheese shop with his wife at number three Rue de Matier. It might as well be New York. <laughs> it wasn't only that. The distant shop offered less choice, was owned by a chain, and employed fishmongers who didn't bother to learn their clients' names or fish preferences. It was also up the hill, an incline that gets steeper as the street moves north toward Montmartre. How will all the old grandmas get their fish? asked Valerie Levine. Since this is France, where people hold their government responsible for just about anything that goes wrong, Valerie insisted that City Hall should guarantee access to fresh fish. The authorities have an obligation to put a fish store here, a civic <laughs> obligation, she said. She circulated a petition demanding a fishmonger. 200 people signed. <laughs> That's awesome. Isn't that great? Yes. I love the idea that right to liberty, pursuit of happiness, and a fish store on your block. <laughs> Where they know Is your people. Liberté, égalité, fraternité, <laughs> poisson. poisson. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, the idea that the fishmonger teaches your children about fish. Mm-hmm. It's an educational experience. Yes. It's an important educational experience. If you're going to be a well-rounded person, you need to understand the world of fish and how that fits into the world of cuisine and how cuisine fits into the rest of your life. How can I'm you... signing the petition. <laughs> how can you know yourself if you don't know what fish you enjoy? <laughs> Truly. The book is fairly recent. It was published in 2015. You can use Google Map and walk the neighborhood that she's talking about. It's a love letter to a street in Paris. It sounds really, really good. I really enjoyed it. It's the only street in Paris left on the Rue de Matier by Elaine Ciolino. What's your last book? I've made it to my last book. But yes. again, because I'm a cheater, I want to <sighs> just mention one <laughs> book before I get to my final book. Okay. In our Scotland episode, I recommended the book City of Ghosts by Victoria Schwab, mm-hmm. which is a YA novel about a precocious 12-year-old girl who can slip through the veil between this world and the other world yes. and whose best friend is a ghost. Yes. That was the first book in a series. The second book in the series is called Tunnel of Bones, and it's set in the Paris catacombs. Oh, lovely. And I actually read that book before we went to the catacombs. So we went in them. I was remembering scenes from the book, which nice. is really fun. Yeah. These books are great. They are on the surface adventure stories about this 12-year-old girl and her best friend, the ghost. But they're really about friendship and loyalty and finding your place in the world. So they have like an emotional resonance, even though on the surface, they're just adventure stories. This one is great for Paris. They go to the catacombs. They go to Père Lachaise Cemetery, which is another one of my favorite places that we visited. The Eiffel Tower, of course. They're non-scary ghost stories. Yeah. Highly recommended. That is Tuttle of Bones by Victoria Schwab. Now on to my actual last book recommendation. Okay. This book is called Little by Edward Carey, and it's a fictionalized biography of Madame Tussaud, the woman who found the famous wax museum. Yeah. So this story actually begins in Switzerland in 1761, and then the action moves to Paris and eventually through the French Revolution in 1789. And we know the what from the outset, right? We know that this little girl is eventually going to grow up to be the famous Madame Tussaud. Mm -hmm. The story is all about the how and the why. This little orphan girl from Switzerland becomes the toast of London with her crazy wax figurines. So Maria is called Little. And she's called Little because she's tiny. And she's kind of a... She's a really wonderful heroine, especially at the beginning of the book when she's just a little girl. She reminded me a little bit of Jane Eyre. She's just kind of like raging against the injustices of her life and the way she's treated really unfairly and callously. She's just a little bundle of angry energy. I have a soft spot for that. (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) She is sadly abandoned by her mother and she's taken in by Dr. Philippe Kirchis, who's a real person. He was a physician, and he specialized in making wax body parts for a teaching hospital. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's real life. Yeah. Fact. So he takes her in, and I feel like it's not quite 
an adoption because I feel like that kind of insinuates that there's some warm feelings <laughs> of love and caring there. Right. But he doesn't really adopt her. He just sort of takes her in and cohabitates with her. As you might a cat. Yes. Okay. And she becomes his apprentice. This is where the tone of the book kind of starts to emerge for me. It's very macabre, but gleefully so. A little bit like Edward Gorey illustrations where okay. you're like, this is really disturbing, but also kind of funny and makes me feel a little warm hearted, even though it's very eerie. It's like that. Both Little and Dr. Curtius are comforted by each other, but they don't love each other. So it's this really weird symbiotic relationship where they need each other and they're helping each other. But you wouldn't really say that they're like father and daughter. Yeah. As Little gets older and learns more about making these wax figurines and she and Dr. Kirchis kind of become a little bit famous in Paris, real life famous Parisians pass in and out of their lives. So you're learning things about the history of Paris and the figures that were really significant in the 18th century. For example, there is a writer named Louis-Sébastien Mercier. He kind of becomes a, an adopted uncle for Little. Mm -hmm. And this is real. This is true. He wrote a book called The Year 2440, A Dream If Ever There Was One. And it's a utopian novel set in the year 2440. Wow. Yeah. When was this? This was uh, the late 1700s. Wow. Yes. That's hard to think about. Yes. And the world he imagined in this book is very much like the world of Star Trek. Like he really envisioned like extreme equality and really comfortable clothes and hospitals based on science. And everyone's <laughs> minds were blown. Yeah. So he becomes kind of like Little's uncle. Also, actual fact, the woman who became... Madame Tussaud, was tutor to Princess Elizabeth, who was the younger sister of Louis XVI. Really? And actually lived at Versailles for a while. Huh. Yes. But as we know happens when you're at court, favors can change really quickly. So that didn't go quite as well as everyone would have liked. I rarely laugh when I'm reading. It's just not an experience that I have, even if I think something is funny. Yeah, same. I kind of read things and think, oh, that's, that's funny. funny. Yeah. yeah. This book made me laugh out loud so many times because it's so just audacious and really, really enjoying being dark. Mm -hmm. And Little is really a treat. There's this one scene. So she and Dr. Kirschus are moving from their original house into the monkey house. What's the monkey house? Like a zoo, but it was a house that had been filled with monkeys. This is a real thing in the 1700s in Paris. It was like a monkey exhibit. So there was a house in Paris that was filled with monkeys and people would pay money to go in and look at the monkeys. Correct. <laughs> 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 and then the monkeys moved out uh -huh. and Little and Dr. Kirschus and their lab and her kind of adopted mother moved in. Can you imagine the cleaning that would be involved with well, taking and, over the monkey house? And that is in the book. Like the <laughs> house is super disturbing. Yeah. It's really an upsetting house. It's cold and she's like 10 or 11. Mm. So it's scary. Mm -hmm. It's dirty. There used to be scary monkeys in here. Mm -hmm. She doesn't like it. And at one point, everyone else goes out and she's left alone in the house by herself. And she walks into the middle of the house and she tips her head back and she shouts, you can't scare me and I'm not going anywhere. So you may as well make peace with me. Wow. And I was like, that's my girl. <laughs> like that's her whole, ad like these terrible things happen to her over and over. And that's her whole attitude. Like I'm scared, but I'm going to fight back. Yeah. It's very endearing. Aww. And from then on, she wasn't scared anymore. So I really like this for a strong sense of place, aside from it being a great story. I like it for a strong sense of place because it's really drenched in atmosphere and the descriptions of places that she lives in Paris are just like, deliciously bleak, which is not a view of Paris that we get frequently. Right, right. Like, it's very chilly. It's very creaky. And the other thing is you get a perspective on the French Revolution, which I hadn't really experienced before, which is the revolution is going on. The town is in chaos. But there's 
also all of these other people just trying to live their lives. Yeah. And there are literally people getting their heads chopped off in the street outside their house. Yeah. So in some ways, it's also a war story in that you see what the revolution is like through the eyes of people who are not directly involved in the revolution. Yeah. So I thought it was funny and moving and surprising and educational, which is all the things I'm looking for. Yeah. That is Little by Edward Carey. Awesome. Those are five books we love set in Paris. Six books we love set in Paris. <laughs> uh, visit our show notes at strongsenseofplace.com for links and details. Mel, what did you write for Paris? Okay, over the next two weeks, we have some very exciting blog posts coming. Okay. The one I'm most excited about is that we're sharing a recipe for a potato chip omelet mm. from the book Tasting Paris mm-hmm. by Clotilde Dussolier. Yes. She is the founder of the website Chocolate and Zucchini. She is a Parisian lady with fantastic taste. The potato chip omelet is from a Michelin star restaurant. She wrote a whole book of very French, I mean, recipes that I very much associate with Paris that is arranged by day part. It's morning, afternoon, evening, late evening, I think. Yes. 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 So if you want to have a day like a Parisian, you can just select a recipe from each section of the book. Done. (laughs) A lovely staycation idea. Yes. Okay, also coming up, we have photos and details about an English language bookstore in Paris that I really loved called the Liberi Galliani. Mm-hmm. We have more books set in Paris because I think in my life I've read something like 30 books set in Paris. And that is all coming over the next two weeks at strongsenseofplace.com. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to Strong Sense of Place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter. It's back with our favorite book and travel-related things. And please follow us on Instagram for photos and illustrations and short book reviews and other things we love. We are at Strong Sense Of. If you enjoy our show, please rate it, review it, and tell a friend. That is the way you can help us ensure that we can keep doing this show. Because we really love doing it, and we hope you love listening to it. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Where are we going for our next show? By request from our audience. We are getting curious about the state known as the last frontier. Star Trek. It is not Star Trek, David. It's Alaska. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice.